You're listening to Lab Notes, your weekly dose of inspiring innovation. Hello and welcome to Lab Notes. I'm your host, Leo Stevens, and today I am pleased to share the microphones with Andy Koronios, a professor of information systems at the University of South Australia and CEO of the SmartSat Cooperative Research Centre in Adelaide. Today, Andy is a key contributor to the Australian Space Agency, bringing together research from dozens of institutions and companies to create leapfrog technologies in satellite design, communication systems, remote sensing, and data analytics. But as you'll hear, Professor Koronios has an incredible personal story too, escaping hardship and personal loss in his homeland of Greece to build a new life in Australia, where he has gone from learning English in night school to becoming one of South Australia's leading academics. Professor Andy Koronios, welcome to LabNotes. Thank you very much, Leo. Thank you. So can we start out with your current role as the CEO of the SmartSat Cooperative Research Centre? Can you just give us a, a quick overview of this program and the work you're undertaking? Yes, certainly. Uh, I am the, the Chief Executive Officer of the SmartSat Cooperative Research Centre, most of your listeners would know of CRCs, as they commonly called. Uh, they have been around for a very long time. I think uh, 1993 was the first one, and every year there would be possibly 20 or 30 active CRCs in, in all sorts of different areas of R&D, industrial R&D in particular. And uh, about three years ago, we decided to also have a cooperative research center in space technologies. We were lucky enough to bring together quite a lot of um, industry partners, some global partners such as Airbus and BAE and Northrop Grumman from the US, MDA from Canada, but also a lot of Australian SMEs like Nova Systems, uh, a South Australian company that is actually gone global, uh, and a lot of a, a, a large star, uh, startup ecosystem, space startup ecosystem that has sprung up only in the last five years or so. Uh, and that is a wonderful kind of opportunity for us to build new technologies for Australia, an area that Australia, although it has had quite a good capability in some areas like astronomy, like communications and so on, it has never had its own satellites really, has not taken advantage of the great opportunity that space uh, actually offers, not only for governments uh, as it has been in the past, but also for uh, our daily lives, in fact. So the SmartSat CRC is a consortium of industry as well as uh, academic institutions. Uh, we have nearly, I think, more than 20 universities, Australian universities involved in this. And of course, we received very generous funding from our federal government. So altogether, this is a large enterprise. In fact, it is the largest space industry research collaboration in Australia's history. It involves more than 100 organizations, and we have raised uh, nearly a quarter of a billion dollars. Wow. Well, we will certainly be getting back to space and the CRC, but I wanted to ask you a few questions about your personal journey too, because it truly is a fascinating story. You were born in Sparta, Greece, in 1954. It was a time of very challenging economic conditions in the wake of World War II, and you were just two years old when your parents left to seek work in Athens. And it turned out you would not see them again for another 15 years. 
What do you remember about your early life in Greece and growing up with your yaya? Yes, um, you've done your research. <laughs> That's fantastic. Thank you. Um, it, 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 I was one of five children in my family. And as you say, Greece, particularly in the villages uh, everywhere, really, at that time, was a very poor country. I'm not a unique person to leave Greece at that time, or, or Europe indeed, but certainly Greece at that time, to seek a better life elsewhere in Australia, Canada, Germany, the US, where the prime areas where most of the Greeks actually went. I found uh, my life I guess I, you could say oh, I was almost an orphan because I didn't see my parents for a very long time. But then my grandmother actually more than made up for what I would have received from parents, I think. And I, I still believe that. And, and I certainly uh, felt it then. She was a fantastic person that uh, I kept a company. We, we kind of lived together and she taught me so many things. It gave me a great education, not only of the academic kind, but also I think she has uh, shaped my character, I believe. Uh, when she died, I was around 16 years of age, and I was very lucky then that uh, my uncle was able to sponsor me to come to Australia because it was very poor. My family had other children, and they were very, very hard times for most families, but certainly for mine as well. So I came, um, I came to Melbourne when I was 17 years of age. Yeah, I did want to ask you about the journey you made from Greece to Australia. You, you sailed aboard a ship that would be remembered by many Greek Australians, one called the Patras. You were still a teenager and travelling alone. It must have been a life-changing voyage for you as a young man. It was. It was awe and um, a lot of, not so much anxiety, because when you're young, you probably don't feel as anxious about the future as we'd do as adults but it was really uh, an adventure but also uh, I was alone uh, I was alone I could speak no English whatsoever uh, and I came by ship uh, the Patrice as, as you said uh, but actually at that time the Suez Canal was closed so I flew from Athens to Djibouti and then the ship took us from there to Australia my first kind of exposure to Australia was Fremantle, and I was, uh, uh, you know, I was fascinated by uh, what I saw. We only stayed there for, I think, a couple of days, but I was fascinated by the land and, and this kind of country that became my country, um, in fact. But in, on the ship itself, um, uh, it, was, it was very interesting. I was alone, uh, but so, so were many others as well. Uh, I couldn't speak English, but there were a lot of Greeks there, so there was no problem there. I had uh, little money, um, but again, these days, those days, that you, you could get by. So it was actually a nice voyage, not quite uh, a cruise, uh, but a nice voyage nonetheless, particularly for the first time. It was really a, an amazing experience. But the, the real adventure and the real kind of... Uh, a great experience for me started when I landed in Australia. And so you were taken in by your aunt and uncle, uh, Andrea and Georgia. What did their hospitality mean for you during that first year in a strange new land? Well, they were, they were extremely, uh, they were also again like another set of parents for me. And indeed, my uncle Andrea was going to be my godfather when he 
uh, was about to leave from Greece, but I was born late and he left early in 1954. So, so we kind of missed each other, if you like. And because of that, my parents gave me his name. But yes, so I, there was already a, an emotional connection and he supported us quite a lot uh, from Australia, supported his mother and therefore supported me. And it was, I think he made a bit of a promise to my grandmother that uh, once she died, that uh, I should come to Australia. They were tremendous. And, and my, my Auntie Georgia still lives, she's 80 something. Uh, she lives in Melbourne in the same house that I spent a year uh, whilst I was going to learn English and went to parent technical school in Chapel Street um, in Melbourne. And um, yeah, it was a wonderful experience then, particularly for me, because I met some wonderful cousins that I had from my, um, obviously my uncle's children, but also his sisters, two of his sisters. Uh, and there were nearly a dozen kids uh, that I stayed in, in their houses and my, my house or my uncle's house. It was a wonderful kind of uh, exposure to Australia, if you like. So it was the early 1970s and you had overcome your deficit in English to matriculate from high school and begin looking towards your career. This was still during the Vietnam War, so I found it interesting that you volunteered for the Australian Army. Can you talk us through that decision? I joined the Army because although I, I enjoyed aeroplanes, I really was uh, enthralled by aeroplanes um, and, and aviation, I couldn't join the Air Force because I wasn't an Australian citizen. And I was encouraged to uh, apply for the army because at that time, Whitlam had come in and it was pretty much uh, within a few months that he abolished national service. And many of the national servicemen uh, in the Australian army were, were really leaving en masse, uh, particularly after the Vietnam War. And therefore, the army basically could would take anybody and they even took me. So. And so, I, but I, I had a personal and, and a selfish reason for joining the army. I had not served in the Greek army and the Greek army had national service, which meant that if I went back to Greece, even on a holiday, they would actually essentially arrest me and put me in, in the Greek army. And indeed, that's exactly what they did about three years later when I did go back. I was uh, essentially uh, held up at the airport and they said, well, you haven't served as a Greek soldier, so now you cannot leave uh, Greece. You have to go into the army. But of course, uh, because I was in the Australian army, uh, they couldn't do anything. So I, they let me go. Wow. It's a, it's a very novel way to dodge military service by joining the military somewhere else. Well, you know, the Australian army was much more generous than the Greek army at the time. I had a wonderful time in the army. I, I learned how to play football and cricket, and I kind of learned English as well. Um, uh, and, and at the same time, I went to night school and got into the University of Southern Queensland, which at the time was the Darling Downs Institute of Advanced Education and studied electrical engineering. And all through the time, the, the army was, was really very, very supportive of everything I did to improve myself. Uh, I remember because when I was trying to go to night school and because the army mess would actually open up after I left uh, to go to night school, the cooks would make me cut dinner, if you like, little sandwiches so that I wouldn't miss my dinner. It was fantastic. It was really a great experience that I've had in the Australian army.
Despite still having a great fondness for the army, by 1975 Andy felt the time was right to further his education. He initially took on a Bachelor of Electrical Engineering, but quickly became infatuated with the emerging discipline of computing, ultimately adding on a Masters of Computer Science, a graduate diploma, and eventually a PhD as he began to forge an academic career for himself. I asked Andy to reflect on his love of learning and his early experiences in academia. I think I always had a desire for learning. Uh, there is no doubt about that. And I still have. I still learn every day something new. Uh, and I, we'll talk about space in a moment. But space was certainly not my training or my forte in any way. But I always like to learn new things. And uh, I really enjoyed the academic life. Although I was quite entrepreneurial, uh, I really enjoyed the academic life. And of course, to be an academic, uh, you need to get higher qualifications. So I enrolled first as, uh, for a master's degree. I did an education degree because I always liked to teach. I still do like to teach. And then I went to Queensland, to uh, the University of Queensland, got a PhD and, and became an academic. I did spend some time in, in business, but while, even whilst I was studying electrical engineering, the biggest area that I enjoyed so much was computing. And in those times, computing was far different to what we enjoy today, in fact. Uh, it was very much hardcore programming. My first language was something called assembler, getting the computer to learn one instruction at a time. So I enjoyed computing, and that's why I moved towards a computer science and IT type of uh, career. And I enjoyed that very much. I enjoyed particularly the, the high-impact research, research that was very much applied, industry type of research I enjoyed very much. I, I think I had a facility, and I still do, to connect people uh, and to connect industry with academia. Even now, I try very hard in the CRC to ensure that whatever we do, we solve problems and create opportunities for industry rather than the pure research, the fundamental research, which, by the way, is so important. In fact, it's critical. Without it, you can't do a lot of the industrial research. But I was much more interested and more attracted to that applied aspect of research. Yeah. So in 2002, you made your last big move, leaving Queensland to take up a professorship at the University of South Australia. And you kept some connection to, to Queensland with the CRC for Infrastructure and Engineering Asset Management, or SEAM. Can you tell us about this first CRC and I guess your first big research collaboration? Yes, and it was, in fact. Uh, it was a CRC that I, I helped a little bit to, um, to get to, to, to make uh, a success, to get approval. But it was, um, it was uh, headed by a colleague and, and friend and now, Joe Matthews, Professor Joe Matthews from uh, Queensland University of Technology, QUT. And that was essentially a CSC that brought large engineering and infrastructure type of organizations much more into the IT area, bringing you know the rail the rail systems and large mining companies to adopt uh, particularly IT technologies. There were other other work that the that the Center for Integrated Engineering Asset Management did. But it actually was very much more around how can you manage these long-term infrastructures, high cost, how can you manage them through the, the life of those, of those assets? 
and to do it using technology. So I was in my element because a lot of that was very much around integration, interoperability of systems, you know, connecting computer systems with old operational systems. Uh, so I was the program, the research program leader for that. And we built quite a significant capability here at UniSA out of that CRC involvement. So as well as SEAM, you've set up a number of other collaborative research projects, including the Advanced Computing Research Centre, the Strategic Information Management Lab, and now the SmartSat CRC. Having done this several times, I wonder if you had any advice for young researchers on how to build and manage a collaborative team. Yeah, I think um, my, my approach has always been to bring people together. It's very, very important to identify opportunities, to see what is coming, the next opportunity, if you like, but bring people together. There's no way that a person can do it by themselves. So, you know, we could say that, um, that, I, that I started some of these centers and now I'm the CEO of the Smarts at CRC. But these things are not in one person um, activity. They, they are very much many people, a, a team type of approach to bring people together. So I think you need to have uh, to pay attention to how will you bring your colleagues together? How will you make sure that sometimes you lead and sometimes you follow? And really, once you have a vision, and that's what, that's what mostly the leader does, is to be able to have that vision, but then the vision alone is not enough. You need to bring the people together. So that is not easy, and I cannot say I'm an expert. I'm, I'm still learning, but nonetheless, uh, that is such a powerful thing. And one of the things, and I wish that I was better than I am, but one of the most powerful things that a young academic could do, you need to learn how to speak well, and how to write well, because once a person is able to speak well with conviction and particularly being able to convince others to follow them, then it is much easier for you to achieve pretty much whatever you want to achieve. But above all, don't do something if your heart is not in it, because passion trumps all of these. If you have passion, it's very infectious. People will follow you. So with a strong track record of collaboration, research leadership, and industry engagement, Professor Koronios has brought his skills to bear as the CEO and director of the SmartSat Cooperative Research Centre, where he is tasked with the challenge of finding a niche for Australia in the competitive world of space technology. I asked Andy about the scientific goals of the centre and the four research themes they are planning to tackle. Yes, uh, certainly. Uh, we. We wanted to find something that was going to make Australia competitive in this very, very big area. We don't many people don't realize uh, how space dependent they are. Uh, it is very, very strong. Pretty much everything you do, you are using space because you can't even check the time unless you have a satellite enabled timing system. You can't check the news, the weather, electronic transactions. Now, because of COVID-19, we hardly use any cash. 
Well, you can't go to the, an ATM and, and use the ATM unless there was a satellite system that enabled you to actually have that transaction take place. So, so we are all very, very dependent on space-based services. And so when we were crafting this uh, bid to, to actually get the CRC together, we thought, what is something that Australia can really uh, be competitive in? And we felt that although you can become a satellite manufacturer, and indeed there are some companies here in Australia that are working in that area, uh, uh, although you can launch satellites, you know, you can have launching platforms and jet propulsion companies and so on, those areas are very mature. They've had dozens of years of experience and technological progress in other countries. And therefore, for Australia to become a leader in those would be very, very difficult. It's a bit like me wanting now to say I'm going to become an Australian Open uh, tennis champion. There is no way that I could do that at this, at this stage, or it would be almost impossible. So what we identified is the areas that Australia can play in, first of all, are communications, because advanced communications is a very important area. It's very needed by Australia because it's so big. We actually control one-tenth of our planet. Um, we cover in our seas and our land mass is one-tenth of our, our planet. And we do need communication services, and those areas are still that technology is still evolving. And Australia is actually in some areas of communications very, very strong. The other area that we are quite strong is in the analytics of data, not the gathering of data, because we don't really have any satellites that gather data uh, that move around the earth every 90 minutes or whatever it may be and, and actually capture data about the environment, about our land, our sea and so on. But we can analyze it. And there are agencies such as Geoscience Australia, the CSIRO and others that have done a spectacular job at actually data analysis from data of other countries, of other satellites. So we thought those would be the areas where we can excel. And of course, as your listeners would know now, there's a new area that is progressing very, very fast. That is artificial intelligence. So what it wanted to do is to make satellites far more intelligent than they are now. At the moment, satellites process communications. You send a signal to a satellite. It does a bit of processing and then sends it somewhere else. There is some intelligence on the satellite, but not very much. And the same with observation. You have satellites that take photographs, that they use remote sensors, uh, like radar, microwave signals, and other signals, but all they do is capture the data. They then have to send it down, and the data is getting bigger and bigger daily. They have to send it down for someone or a system to analyze that data. What we want to do is to actually put the machine learning algorithms, the AI processing algorithms on the satellite itself so that the satellite becomes more autonomous and more intelligent about what it is seeing on the ground or, on, uh, or in the sea. So that if a satellite, for instance, is looking, uh, passing over the ocean and sees 
takes a picture of something that looks like a ship, it should be able to do the processing of analysis, that image processing, to say, hmm, that seems to be a ship. Let's now do some more analysis about that. Let's um, take some more information, better pictures, whatever it may be, rather than sending all the data down for someone to actually analyze and identify that that was indeed a ship or an illegal fishing boat or whatever it may be. So that they are the three areas that we really are focusing our research program in. I wanted to ask as well, you know, the CRC, it forms part of this renewed focus in Australia under the banner of the Australian Space Agency. What do you feel is SmartSat's place within that broader effort and how significant are the research CRCs to Australia's move back to space? Well, I think it's critical because, uh, you know, the Space Agency has done a tremendous job uh, in, in its two years. Yesterday was its second birthday. It has done a tremendous job in, the, in, in, in establishing the agency and really setting up the, the fundamentals for us to really invest in space and, and reap the benefits of space. So, so we feel ourselves as, the, as one of the R&D engines, if you like, of that space effort. We want to uh, build the industry, and that is why we've allowed, uh, we've invited uh, and work, are working with industry, with new um, companies here in, uh, in Australia, but also overseas companies as well, to build the capability here in Australia and build the industry, the space industry. But you can't just build companies through only an idea. Sometimes you can, but often you need to have some IP. You need to have some technology that you can put uh, to be able to then leverage to make it a product that someone else will buy. And that's what we provide with the R&D that we will be conducting and already began uh, the, the, the R&D process. We'll be able to, to build the next generation of technologies, the next generation of algorithms that will provide then our companies the technological competitive advantage for us not only to build uh, space products and services that we could benefit here in Australia and export to the world, but more importantly also to really transform our major industries. We've got fantastic industries such as mining. Well, mining relies on communications, particularly the new generation of mines are likely to be pretty much without any humans there because a lot of it will be robotic. A lot of that will be remotely controlled. So you need to have the communications capabilities and new technologies to do that. The same with agriculture. You know, we are at a tremendously successful country in producing very healthy very trusted food that we export to the world. Well, the world population is going to go in the next 30 years, is going to go from 7 billion to 9 billion. All of those people will need to be fed and we would want to do our farming and our agriculture in a more efficient and more effective and more profitable way. And to do that, you need to actually use new generation of technologies and certainly space is an important element of those. Yes, it's an exciting area and certainly an exciting time for the Australian space sector specifically. 
On the topic of new ventures and technologies stemming from the research at the CRC, I know you guys are forming a partner organization called Aurora, which is essentially a vehicle through which startups and SMEs can become part of the CRC's work. It's an interesting model, so I wondered if you could tell us a bit about Aurora and what you hope it will achieve. Yes, certainly, absolutely. Uh, our mantra is very much to, to help build Australia's space industry. Uh, and this space industry has been very, very small. Uh, and when it comes to very small SME and startup companies, 10 years ago, you would only have uh, a handful of companies that would call themselves an Australian space company. Now you have hundreds. You've got two or 300 companies that are Australian companies actually working with across the value chain from launch uh, to propulsion and all the way to the analytics uh, downstream. So there are many, many of those companies. More than 50 of those are actually members of the Smarts at CRC. And what we want to do is to give them a voice in the activities of the CRC, in the R&D activities, because we want to help them thrive. We're going to help them survive and thrive in this highly competitive uh, area, like all other areas, in fact. So we, we have formed this, this new company, which is essentially supported by the Smarts at CRC, to give them a voice, but also to give them an opportunity for them to work and leverage the funding and the capability that the Smarts at CRC has for them to grow, to network, to build collaborations amongst them, and to develop uh, the industry as a whole, both for them as members, but also for other members as well, other industry uh, SMEs and startups, Australian industry SMEs and startups that wish to be part of the space, uh, I would call space revolution. Well, I think a call out to join the space revolution is a wonderful place to wrap up today's episode. There'll be links in the description for anyone looking to learn more about Aurora and the SmartSat CRC. A final question for you, Andy, and one that we ask all our guests, is whether you have a book recommendation for the audience. Um, um, from my perspective, the books that I liked, and one of them is so small you can read it in the bus on the way to work, uh, is called Who Moved My Cheese? by Spencer Johnson, a wonderful little book that actually talks about change and how we all react to change. A, a, a very recent book that I like I liked uh, is Sapiens from Yuval Noah Harari. That he's a, uh, an amazing person that talks about the history of mankind and how we found ourselves on the, essentially on the top of the food chain, even though we are not really that strong as a species. Um, and finally, I love um, the work of Jordan Peterson uh, when it comes to young people, when it comes to understanding why we live. The Maps of Meaning is a great book to read, and I certainly have enjoyed that. Andy, thank you so much for your time on the podcast this afternoon. It's my pleasure, Leo. Thank you very much. Well, that's all we can fit into Lab Notes for this week. We hope you enjoyed it. If you're keen to hear more inspiring stories of innovation, check out our back catalogue and subscribe to the channel so new episodes can appear on your device once a week. Lab Notes is produced by Eon Labs in collaboration with Rennie Digital. 
You can find links to both of those organizations, along with our guest's biography and more in the description below. Our music is sourced from Purple Planet Music and mixed by Nat Harris. I'm your host, Dr. Leo Stevens. Until next week, keep inventing.